Welcome to The Business Extra. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, The National's Assistant Editor-in-Chief. Today, we're going to be talking about energy markets and oil and what's next. But before we do that, if you like this show, please do subscribe, or if you're on YouTube, hit that bell. Uh, well, talking about energy and oil, I'm very pleased to say joining us is The National's regular contributor and also the CEO of Kamar Energy, Robin Mills. Robin, hi. Hello, everyone. Uh, good to have you with us. Um, obviously, you, you're a regular contributor for us. Our audiences know you well, both from the nationalnews.com and as well as the Business Extra. It's been an interesting period for the last couple of weeks for energy markets. There's been a lot of noise around politics, particularly the US, a little bit uh, off color because of OPEC's move uh, to reduce output from November. Uh, but it also seems to be a bit of concern over the outlook for demand. And that seems to be the main driver for OPEC. But from your point of view, Robin, um, what are you seeing as the main factors at the moment dominating the discussions around energy and, and crude oil? Well, absolutely, uh, Mustafa. So what is dominating the discussions is a bit different from what's dominating the market. So, you know, if we look at back at the June, oil prices were at $124 per barrel. Um, and then subsequently, they, they slipped down to, to $84 per barrel just before the OPEC meeting, bounced back a bit and have been, been, been volatile since, but, uh, you know, hovering around 90. So um, we have all this discussion about the, the OPEC move. We have all the discussion, of course, about the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict and sanctions on Russia and so on. Um, and, and yet the market has been primarily responding to, to the demand story. Uh, and, and that's something that's got rather less attention. And the demand story is, is obviously an important one. You know, the global economy, um, the concerns that the global economy is showing signs of weakening. It's a bit hard to see that actually showing up in demand data yet, but there's plenty of negative indicators, but particularly around China, of course. The slowing Chinese economy, a very significant slowdown, and then the, the ongoing lockdowns. And, and it seems that China is, is still sticking with its, its very strict uh, zero COVID policy. And that means more lockdowns and, and lower oil demand from China going forward. Um, and that, that's that has been outweighing a lot of the other political action, which is called, of course, is more more affecting the supply side. Yes, because you talk about China, which has been sort of a moving target because there were times when we thought this year that the Chinese economy post covid was back on track. But, um, you know, particularly uh, with President Xi, he's just got a new term and he made it clear that the zero COVID policy was here to stay. And so we we should expect that there will be continuing disruptions there. China, one of the biggest consumers of of, of crude and, and, and gas and energy in the world. So that that becomes a significant factor. But we also have the ongoing issue of the Ukraine conflict, which since the end of February has also dominated discussions. And I wonder what, you know, what factors when it comes to how Europe's energy supply is dealing with that or how prices have been rising as a result in, in general with high inflation elsewhere, d d does Ukraine continue to be a major factor when we look ahead? Well, absolutely, I, I think it does, but in different ways depending on, on oil and gas, right? So, you know, so far this crisis has been primarily a crisis of gas and therefore of electricity, which of course a lot of it is generated from gas. And, and that's why we've seen these exceptionally high energy bills in Europe, and, and those bills will, will get worse over the winter. That's why we've seen these, these severe concerns over energy security supply, and, you know, even blackouts or, or shortages of gas, um, regardless of price in, in Europe. We've seen Europe sucking in LNG, liquefied natural gas supplies from the rest of the world. So countries such as Pakistan, India, Bangladesh having to go short. Um, 
we have uh, and we've seen some European utilities under huge financial stress because they're unable to afford to buy gas to, to serve their customers and uh, and having to be bailed out by governments. So that that's really where the the economic and the price action has been, and, and that's that's been a major factor driving up inflation. Now, oil prices, on the other hand, you know, we said oil prices of, of now around ninety dollars per barrel. That's not exceptional in historic terms. It, it's a bit higher than the long term average, not by much. Uh, and if you remember that that under uh, under President Obama in, in the U.S. during his time in office, uh, the oil price was pretty consistently at one hundred and ten dollars per barrel or, or above. You know, and then uh, and that was, of course, some years ago. Take inflation off that, it would be that would price would be even higher today. So you know, the kind of the, the, the oil prices that that uh, the U.S. is is confronting today are not particularly high, and yet the political concern from Joe Biden's administration is very much on on the oil price, and that's why you know a major reason why they responded so angrily to the OPEC plus production cuts. You know, OPEC plus earlier this month announced a two million barrel per day cut in its targets. Um, the U.S. had thought that it, it had commitments by them not to cut production, and it responded very angrily, um, and and really kind of put putting before that I think two two reasons, but then there's one kind of less overt reason. You know, the first reason they were concerned about was the health of the global economy. Well, you know, I, I honestly don't think that oil prices at ninety dollars per barrel are, are a major drag on the global economy or or a major driver of inflation. You know, it's the gas side, as I mentioned, that's more serious. Um, the second reason was was that they, they felt this was supporting Russia in its war against Ukraine. Now, Russia is is a member of OPEC Plus, but but all the OPEC Plus countries make decisions based on their own national interests as, as they judge it. I don't, don't think any of them plan to do a favour uh, to, to Russia in this policy. But the third unstated reason is obviously U.S. midterm elections coming up next month, and and the price of gasoline for U.S. drivers is is always a big political concern. I'm I'm quite surprised at the volume of the protests coming out of Washington over the OPEC plus decision to cut output. I understand what you're saying in terms of their concerns, whether politically over midterm elections or the state of the economy. Um, but you know, as many OPEC plus producers lined up, uh, including Saudi over the last week, to make it very clear that, as you said, the decision was very much based on on economic interests. Um, that the US itself, until very recently was the largest exporter of crude and certainly or at least the largest producer of crude um and it was you know had its huge its own huge uh, shale uh, market as well which you know given what happened with covid um has been has somewhat retrenched and hasn't necessarily come back but you would think that it would be easier if the the point was to really bring supply back to focus domestically you know how how much of this is posturing and posturing to a particular audience, because I wonder, and I guess this is the question I'm asking you, what, how much does this political fallout actually affect the dynamics of energy markets? Yeah, look, I, I think it's, it's, it's a complex one, but you know, looking at it from the US administration's point, point of view, um, they're in a bit of a vulnerable position. You know, Joe Biden visited uh, Saudi Arabia in, in July, um, the, uh, the claim was that this meet, the, these meetings were not really about oil. That wasn't the primary purpose of his visit. It was about oil, but it was widely interpreted that was a very key issue. Uh, I think some of the U.S. Uh, officials thought they'd got commitments from, from Saudi Arabia not to cut back production. Um, if, I, don't, I doubt that they did, but if they, but if, but if they thought they did, then obviously that hasn't been borne out. Um, and you know, so it, it's always easy to blame a foreign, uh, a foreign nation rather, rather than domestic policies. 
you know, on the other hand, though, I don't think that you know, there's, there's this kind of narrative. The Biden administration feels it's vulnerable to the narrative that it's damaged U.S. oil production um, and that the U.S. could could and should be producing more of its own oil instead of going to other countries. And I don't think that's really true. Look, I, I think, um, yeah, the Biden administration has a, has a, has a pro-climate uh, policy, uh, quite rightly. They have a lot of green policies. They have policies, you could say, are anti-fossil fuel. Um, I don't think any of those have had really any material impact on, on U.S. production. Um, they they may do over the next few years. I don't think they've had much different made much difference so far. I think the real issue is uh, that oil prices from 2014 through to 2020 were very low. We had an all-time epic uh, price crash in 2020, of course, um, and uh, and that's really burnt shale investors in the U.S. who don't want to invest heavily in, in oil now. They'd rather just just take profits from from past investments, and um, and if they do try to increase production, they run up against supply chain constraints labor force constraints and so on, which are not easy to solve either. Um, but of course, the oil companies you know, politically are, are generally Republican supporting and, and so on, not, not inclined to, uh, to, 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 to bail out the Democrats. So we have on the one hand, we have OPEC plus, whose kind of main priority is stability of energy markets. And largely they've been successful at this with the exception, as you mentioned in, in 2020 with COVID. Uh, but you know, historically they've been able to bring together OPEC members and non-OPEC members to form that OPEC plus supergroup and ensure that there is some kind of stability between uh, demand, supply and prices changing things wherever it's need, needed to be. And of course, as we've discussed, President Biden's administration, the US is a different narrative that they're talking about that very much relates to them. Um, but these voices have kind of you know, become loudest now, given this discussion over the last couple of weeks. But really, the, the most important, perhaps, discussion that was very kind of of very much a priority at the beginning of this year after COP26 in Glasgow last year and ahead next month in Egypt of COP27 and of course in the UAE COP28, which is energy as it relates to climate action and ensuring that you know medium to long term we have the right energy mix. And of course, the Ukraine war um, reminded us of the need for, for energy security and, and to ensure that as we transition, that we're not kind of trying to switch one system off without having another one in place. But how concerning is it at the moment that that discussion is perhaps not front and center where it should be, given the last few weeks and months? Yeah, look, it's it is a big concern, and I think there's a real disconnect here. So if you look at COP26 in in Glasgow, um, that uh, oil oil companies, oil and gas companies were were not welcome to attend. You know, they were not they were not in, they were deliberately not invited. Um, that was 2019, of course. Very soon afterwards, it became apparent that, uh, well, you know, uh, actually the uh, the oil and gas companies have a very important role in ensuring energy security in in, in the immediate term. Um, and there's been a desperate scramble in in Europe and and in general for for, for oil and gas supplies um, to 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 fill those that have been interrupted by by sanctions and and other disruptions and and to meet the increased demands that have come out of the COVID period. Um, the COP twenty seven in Egypt. A big theme of that is 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 it's going to be an African COP, and big theme is energy access. How do you bring affordable, reliable energy to to the people who don't have it? Um, and and again, I think there's a recognition that that denying um, poorer parts of the world uh, fossil fuels in in appropriate places um, is is a misguided policy. Um, their emissions are very low compared to to uh, to Europe or, or North America. Um, and, uh, and not a material part of the climate problem, but still they're being denied access to energy. 
And yes, renewables are a big part of that solution, but then they're, they're far from the only part. And then, of course, COP28 in the UAE next year will be, is being held in a major oil producer. And this is, I think, a very important opportunity to, to try to continue this theme of what is the role of the oil and gas industry in, in global climate uh, and climate policy, but also in energy security? And, and what is the, the balanced way to use oil and gas appropriately um, and sensibly to support energy security while, while still reducing emissions? And if you look at the, the, the net zero scenarios that are, that are proposed by the International Energy Agency and others for how do we get to net zero emissions by 2050, which is only, of course, 28 years away, not, not a long time in the, in the energy business, the, um, these scenarios, they still all have substantial use of, of, of oil and, and particularly of gas by, by 2050. Uh, and the kind of decline that you would see in, in, in use, so the use does go down, but still the decline in use is, is slower than the natural decline in oil and gas fields. In other words, if we stop investing in oil and gas, we will run out of oil and gas supplies quicker than we, we run out of demand. So there is a need for ongoing investment. Uh, and then, of course, on top of that, we have the Russia-Ukraine issue, which is about how do you replace a country uh, which is is the world's largest exporter, has been the world's largest exporter of gas, and one of the world's largest exporters of oil. If that country, uh, through through war and sanctions, is not able to be an exporter at those levels any anymore, um, how can that be replaced? Again, part of that replacement is renewables, other new energy sources, improved efficiency, but some of it has to be from increased oil and gas supplies, and we see the uh, the GCC countries uh, being an absolutely crucial part of that yeah I, i'm reminded of of sort of 2006 2007 when oil prices were historically very very high um i think we had a peak of over 140 dollars a barrel at one point around then and so the push for renewables into the energy mix was based on economic viability on the need to come up with a cheaper alternative um uh, to, to to oil at the time and this is of course before the big gas boom that's really happened in the last 10 to 15 years and then the financial crisis hit and the 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 pace of development of renewables slowed considerably they were no longer fashionable oil prices dipped um and you know political concerns took to the fore sovereign debt crises the markets began to speak and basically dictate everything we were doing um, which has been a bit th of a theme of mine at the moment this week, especially given what's happened with bond markets uh, toppling a prime minister in the UK. Um, but, you know, how much do the energy markets really serve us? Because right now we have to push ahead with our bigger agenda uh, infrastructure and projects and investment. We can't just get bogged down in, you know, what this current US administration wants or what OPEC plus needs over the next six months. We need to kind of deliver on these big, big visionary, visionary items. And, and, and to use an example, and it's an extreme one, but the protest by stop the oil the other day, where they threw soup over a Van Gogh painting and kind of said, we're doing this because no one's paying attention anymore. And, and, you know, we, 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 the UK government isn't stopping oil and gas licenses like they promised. Those voices will probably continue to get louder and more extreme, which just causes more volatility and more, and more disruption at a time when, you know, we seem to have at least a loose agreement at COP26 in Glasgow of how to move forward. It feels like all that unity has kind of just fallen apart. Um, and I guess to get your view on it, is that, too pessimistic a view of, of, of where things are at the moment? Well, uh, there's a lot to unpack there and stuff. Well, that is, uh, you know, real, uh, real tr tricky set, set of uh, set of areas. Look, let's take the protests first. I think um, 
my problem with the protest, it's not necessarily the means of protest. People have to have eye-catching protests, uh, you know, if they want to get a message across, whatever their campaign is. Um, uh, don't particularly have a problem with that. Uh, what I do, I do have a problem is, 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 is the direction and the timing, you know. Going against oil and gas production, that, that's always the villain. Um, but the real problem, you know, what, what problem has Europe got now? It hasn't tackled oil and gas consumption fast enough. Production has gone down faster than consumption, and therefore there's a shortage and very high prices. And, you know, they, uh, if you're going to throw uh, oil or if you're going to campaign at the headquarters of BP, let's say, as they have done previously, why not campaign at the headquarters of a car manufacturer or, or an airline or, or other um, other companies, which, which you could say are responsible for the use of fossil fuels, you know, not, not just their production. Um, so that that's where I, that's where I think, uh, you know, the process is mis, misguided. And also the timing. We're talking about a, a, a timing that people are across Europe and globally and very much in developing countries are are struggling with energy bills that are just simply unaffordable, and and whether consumers pay or whether the government pays, you know, this the uh, the money money for this is, is not available indefinitely. There's a shortage of supply, and, and that means somebody's got to go short. And the question is just how do you protect the vulnerable, and how do you how do you allocate that that energy in, in what you do have in the most sensible way, and 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 choosing this moment to to suggest that the solution is less oil and gas production, I think is. Is is counterproductive to to people who are struggling to pay their bills and who are going to you know, lose sympathy for the, the climate cause. Um, and I think look, they say there's nothing being done on climate. Actually, there's a huge amount being done on climate. We've made tremendous progress uh, in recent years since since Paris in 2015. Um, and you mentioned yeah yeah there was a lost decade following the financial crisis of, of low low investment, too low investment in renewables. Um, but we're now past that. You know, renewable investment is booming. Electric vehicles are booming. Uh, we're seeing a lot of very interesting and important new technologies entering the market. Um, tremendous appetite for all kind of climate solutions. Carbon capture and storage is 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 really forging ahead. Uh, um, finally, after after years of of not moving fast enough. So yeah, there's actually a lot going on on climate, and I think the 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 job now is not to kind of wake people up out of complacency because nobody's complacent in this environment. Um, it's it's to harness that energy, you know, uh, in inverted commas, uh, that that political energy productively. And and use it to, to advance all these new energy projects. Um, I absolutely agree with you. Look look on the U.S. You know, U.S. politics is 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 volatile and uh, and and often misguided. Um, and the world, other countries outside the U.S. have to have their own energy policies that move forward sensibly, regardless of what what's uh, of what's going on in the U.S. Um, we talk about the, the the bond markets and and their ability to punish errant governments. Um, and we've seen a, a big part of this financial stress on governments is energy, these unaffordable commitments that have been made to subsidize energy in whether you take the UK or the um, or, or the EU or or, or, uh, or developing countries in South Asia and elsewhere. But, you know, solving the climate and energy challenges uh, simultaneously is actually going to require huge additional government spending um, in new technologies, new infrastructure and so on. Um, so the question is, how, how do you finance that in, in a sensible way uh, and make sure that money is actually being, being spent in, in huge amounts, but but in a in a productive way uh, and not just going to special interests or uh, or, uh, or or projects uh, with excessively long, excessively complex, long lead time projects that, that are not going to be effective on the time scales that we have. Robin, I'm very happy to hear that you're less pessimistic than me. Um, Robin Mills, CEO of Kamar Energy. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much. So if you want to subscribe to Robin's weekly energy newsletter, you can do that at thenationalnews.com. Uh, that's all we've got time for today. Uh, all that remains is to thank our production team and you all for being with us. Do join us again next time.